John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. Accessed entry 399.1T0119, certificate number 31403, the 1871 whaling disaster. Do you remember several months ago, I read the book Moby Dick with uh, with a little book club. I had going on here in Seattle. It's true. You've been coasting on that for quite a while. And, I, and during the experience, you know, I wrote down several potential omnibus topics having to do with whales and whaling. Look at you. Never not podcasting. That's right. Just like, oh, tell me more. I used to put stuff on Instagram, but now I'm, I don't do social media. So all I have is omnibus project. What if the show was just you describing selfies of yourself? I'm just like, check it out. I was at this store and they was, there was this thing. Isn't it funny? Uh, but, um, but it was surprising how, you know, because Moby Dick is such a dense book, there's an awful lot in it that suggested omnibi. And it weaves in kind of 19th century non-fictional stuff into the narrative. Right. Right. Well, so much, so many references to politics, culture, uh, and industry at the time. Also, I loved the opportunity to say the word Soviet, as you know, and I'll have that opportunity in today's show. Really? It doesn't come up much in... The Soviets are almost nowhere to be found in Moby Dick. Is there a political officer on board the Pequod? There's not, but uh, but you may recall they were very avid whalers. They were. The USSR loved to kill whales. It was one of, the, it was one of their top five uh, proficiencies. One of the things they were best at. I mean, that's why I would always boo for the Soviet wrestler. I'd be like, I bet this dude has killed some whales. Boo, Soviet wrestler. I, I, supported, I supported Romanian... Uh, Acrobats, but never the never the big Soviet hockey players, whale killers. That's what I called them. I was just reading about how the time that the IOC, the Olympic Committee, gave Ceausescu its highest, uh, whatever your highest commendation of meritorious Olympic service was. Do you know why Ceausescu got a medal from the Olympics? Because he decided not to boycott the LA Games. Like oh, they, really? they gave him an award for not doing something. You know, Romania and uh, and the Yugoslavs under Tito, they really went their own way sometimes. They did their own thing. I mean, they murdered people in different ways. I feel like Nixon gave Ceausescu a Lincoln Continental. I'm not sure if that's true. I mean, I'm no like, no world leader is going to be happier about that than Ceausescu. I know, right? Like, this came right from Nixon. 
Anyway. You use oil, I'm guessing, right? Um, you definitely prefer the flyaway look for I your use, hair, so you don't use pomade. I use, uh, oh, you mean on my hair? No, I just mean oil in I any sense. I use olive oil in my salads. Sure. I use uh, some kind of, uh, what do I put on my hands? Cocoa butter, do shea you? butter. Do you? That do you? has oil in it. You use lotion is what you're saying. I, I do use lotion. Here's a little little peek behind the curtain. What a scoop <laughs> that is for our listeners. I wonder how many of our listeners w- use lotion. Well, they're probably just kind of cracked, dry, trilobite people with exoskeletons. So I'm not someone who uses lotion, and sometimes I'm amazed at how many people do use lotion. Are you saying you've never used lotion, or you have to things have to get really bad for you to reach for the lotion? No, I use lotion. More, m- most recently, I use lotion typically because I because people stopped using bar soap and started using soap in little plunge bottles, pump bottles, and body so wash. I will go to use say. some. Yeah, I'll go use. I'll go to use what I think is soap, and it turns out to be lotion. <laughs> so you you use lotion accidentally yes. more than you do on purpose. One hundred percent, one hundred percent more accidental lotion than intentional lotion. So then I'm in a posture where I had dirty hands. Now I have greasy, yeah, dirty, dirty hands, yeah. so I have to rub the lotion kind of in and then actually look around and find which one of these five pump bottles is soap. Is and you're blaming soap. this on the young people who refuse to buy bar yeah. soap yeah. like like good God-fearing Christians. Bar soap is how soap should be. This soap and pump bottles is is solving a problem that nobody has. You should rub a little rectangle all over your body. Why should you use a, a liquid that actually flows smoothly over the area to be cleaned? Rub a little rectangle... No, I, it's it's a it's a thing. Uh, it's a wastefulness issue. I think that you're going to end up using more soap uh, with a pump bottle than you are with a bar. With a bar, you rub it a couple of times. You're right. You're in. You're out. So you, pump feel, bottle, you, you feel like you're being a good a conservationist. I just feel like you're getting duped. You're getting I feel less like, for your buck. Uh, yeah, it's like uh, it's like I went to the store the other day, and all the mayonnaise now is in is in squeeze bottles. And it's like I just want to think a jar of mayonnaise that I put a knife in. I get a little mayonnaise. I put. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to hear that sound when I put mayonnaise on a sandwich. I mean, I, it was bad enough when the government was doing this kind of psychological nanny state warfare. Yeah. But now that mayonnaise corporations have figured out how to get you to eat eight percent more mayonnaise, or, or soap companies have gotten to figure out how to use eighteen percent more cleanser. Like I'm not an infant. I don't need everything in a toothpaste toothpaste container. I want everything in the form the astronauts would use. Yes. Tang. Exactly. <laughs> mix it with mix it with recycled urine. I pour soap powder all over myself and then I step into a spray of cold a jet of cold water for eight seconds and I'm ready to face the day. There you are. There you are. Sleep upside down. I put oil in my car, although not very much. Right. You are a, an electric car person, or at least a hybrid car person. Yeah. So, as lo- you know, I use this oil very slowly. I drive a 1979 GMC Suburban, so You're I- You're making up the slack. I use a lot. I use your oil and mine. Uh, yeah. While my car is parked here, you actually drain the oil out of it and put mm-hmm. it into your Suburban, mm-hmm. which is a weird thing. Just, just to make up for the oil that's dripping out of my Suburban, even as we sit here. But I don't. None of those are whale oil. But those are the very. Those are the. Those are the main kinds of oils I use. Heating oil for my house. But you know your Dell computer. Not to, uh, not to uh, to give them free advertising. But there's some. There's plastics in it. There's plastics in. I don't oil my computer up. But your car is full of plastics. I mean, we use a lot of petroleum in yes. our world. I'm not listing all the ways I use petroleum products, but I guess you, I should. 
No, I'm just I'm just pointing out that you are complicit in all the crimes of the 19th and 20th centuries. I just like to do that as part of our general banter. I'll switch right? to a plant-based computer. I'll switch to a bamboo computer. Yeah, I would I too. Care. I would too. If the professor will make me one out of coconuts. It's funny to think that petroleum that we've had a much longer uh a much longer relationship with oil than we have with ground-based petroleum products. Oil that we think of as oil that comes from the ground. Black gold, Texas tea. But you're saying oil was not always Texas tea. It would, Mesopotamian tea would have been a very different animal. When we think of, of all the uses that we have for oil, a lot of those uses, um, a, a, a lot of, a lot of the, the heavy lifting of oil was performed by whale oil for a couple of centuries Salad dressing? Uh, Deli- even, a delicious ugh. whale oil vinaigrette? But whale oil lit our homes, not just in the form of uh, like candles made of, of spermaceti or whale wax, as, as I like to call it. <laughs> Little whale wax But on you know, stacks. the, the um, and not just oil in lanterns, uh, but, but oil in the sense of an industrial lubricant, oil... Was, oh. Oil was one of, the, one of the ways that the Industrial Revolution happened and all these fantastical machines that were, that were um, you know, building, building steampunk flying machines and, and uh, cotton gins and whatnot. Panama canals. They were all lubricated with oil, and the source of that oil was whales. Wow. We found the, the greatest animal, and we literally ground it up and put it into machines and built... A terrible new civilization on the back of that. That should have been an omen right there. It's all mm-hmm. the whale ghosts mm-hmm. in our in our plants and, uh, and mills and refineries. That's right. Probably that has cursed all our endeavors since then. That's why New Bedford is one of the largest cities in the world. New Bedford is, uh, is a, gleam, a gleaming metropolis. <laughs> just it's just all the whale ghosts. If that, you go downtown tonight, <laughs> there's just giant shimmering whale ghosts. Ooh. I mean, that is what whale song sounds like. So they're just talking. We think it's a ghostly noise, but noise, but they're just saying, "You killed us, you killed you so killed many of us. us," and we're like, "That's beautiful." I'm gonna put that on while I go to sleep. It wasn't just the oil, though. We also, uh, I mean, I know that your wife still wears a corset <laughs> and a whale of Olay. <laughs> And, uh, whale oil of Olay. The whales were so enormous that, um, that there was lots of material you could glean from a whale and we found uses for it. So baleen whales, uh, that, uh, the baleen itself was kind of a proto plastic. It had, it had uh, the, the qualities of material that we later found, we later made out of plastic. It was kind of flexible, but also, um, but also, you know, rigid in rigid in certain flexions and flexible in others. What kind of things would somebody make out of baleen? I mean, are, are it was it the the stays, the ribs of a corset? Was Absolutely. That mm. Um, not just uh, so corsets, we chose, we but, chose the fattest animal, <laughs> and we used it to give us unhealthy hourglass waists. But also, we made like hair combs. Oh. And, um, I guess saving a lot of tortoiseshells, but, but it's uh, saving a lot of tortoiseshells, but, but it was, a uh, in the 19th century, you know, this was an era, uh, kind of a dawn of consumer goods. So things like 
back scratchers and parasol ribs and buggy whips and this all seems like things we could have lived without and literally saved so many whales yeah but it was part of the i mean it was like beaver hats it was a thing that well why not decimate an entire mammalian uh phylum maybe the reason why they sound a little frivolous is because you know we were we were butchering all these whales for the oil and then the baleen is a byproduct so capitalism has to think of some way to trick us into buying baleen. And hey, look, uh, here's a back scratcher. These mirrors have a new kind of handle. Check it out, ladies. And it turned out that those were those those became major uses of the of you know you to harvest a whale was to have a a bounty across a couple of different you know you made oh, several sure. different piles right and you're you You'd would eat all winter eat all winter. You boil that blubber down and get more, more, more oil out of it. Spermaceti uh, in sperm whales was a different material, um, but also all the ivory that you would put presumably into piano keys and um, dominoes and chess pieces uh, and get you know guitar. That's all, that's guitar all my ivory. That's all my ivory items. I can't think of any more. Oh, oh fu- uh, George Washington's teeth. Some of them. Think how much you'd have to uh, whittle down a whalebone to get to the size of a tooth. Well, you're probably, that's just the stuff you're whittling away when you're making piano keys. Ah, I see. Um, and the, the whaling industry, as as previously detailed on Omnibus, what, what were the Omnibus episodes uh, that mm. I, or entries that I talked about whaling? Beaver Castorium had some ambergris it in did. it. Ambergris. Uh, what else did we have? I don't know. But whaling is clearly an ancient practice. Like the Basques were hunting whales in in 1000 AD, which is which is the earliest record of any Basques. How the hell did we even know they were there? They didn't. Sheep up in having the mountains? not been invented yet. That's right. They had to herd whales instead. They, they were out. They were out hunting whales. But the Japanese have a long history of hunting whales. The I mean, the Native Americans of the Pacific Coast all had whaling. Uh, like subsistence whaling traditions. Uh, you could see why you would. Hmm? It's it's just like we said. You, you're gonna you're it's gonna right attack there. the biggest, fattiest predator you can find, and boy, you can't get bigger or fattier than a whale. Uh, yeah. Well, prey, right? The only some whales are predators. Some of them are. I mean, I guess a lot of them are. Yeah, they're all eating some kind of krill. What or were something. the Salish Indian? Were they eating orca up here, or were they? No. Were they getting the passing gray? Oh, no, you don't eat an orca. Good God! Well, man. that's that's what I'm wondering. Yeah, no, gray whales or or um, humpback, humpback whales. Something, something just yeah, something delicious making its way up to Alaska and doesn't quite get there. I I think you would not mess around with an orca, right? If you were, a, well, if they you were, were the a, only ones that would have been local. You know, to no, no, all those big whales are passing by. Well, they, they pass by, but I'm all just right. saying the only ones that like live nearby. Oh, that are year-round residents. Yeah. I think the macaw, it was a seasonal thing. You go out when the whales are going by and you get one, bring it back. And and uh, yeah, presumably you learn to smoke it. It's good eating. But uh, industrial whaling kind of started when there was more and more need for all these resources. And the first first whalers, you know, went out from... They stood on the shore. They waited for whales to go by. They were like, there she blows. They ran out, got in their little boats, sailed out or, you know, paddled hard, got to the whales, hunted them, brought them back to shore to process them. It was only sort of in the late 18th century that you started to have, um, you know, dedicated whalers that went out, look, went out in ships with the, with the intention of hunting whales 
on the open sea. I'm much more the first guy. Yeah. I want a fun day trip. You're an opportunistic whaler. Yeah. I don't want to have to live on a boat. Um, you know, like, a it's the equivalent of somebody just being in a Navy submarine for months, just in case something comes by and we need somebody already at sea. Boring. Yeah, it is boring, but, but. Uh, but lucrative and, and as is, as Melville recounts, like this is all part of kind of the Yankee mercantile, at least in the Amer in America, kind of the Yankees, um, in their, in their, uh, Puritan, um, Puritanical money grubbing ways, Puritanical nility. Uh, yeah, their money grubbing ways. They really turned it into a into initially a cottage industry and then like a major, major industry. This was, whaling became in the United States in the 19th century, like our fifth biggest industry. Wow. Um, and, and the British and the What would the that be today? Influencers? The fifth biggest industry in the United States today. It's US YouTube influencers. Fifth biggest industry. Let's see what it is. Tell me, internet, the 10 biggest industries by revenue in the U.S., what do you think is number one? It's by revenue. Yeah. Uh, oil. Retirement and pension plans. <laughs> Boy, am I in the wrong industry? Is the biggest industry. This that's that's one trillion two hundred. This country used billion. to make things, John. The second biggest industry: health and medical insurance. Ah, not good. even medicine. Not even providing a product, providing obstacles to the product. So pension plans is one, medical insurance is two. See, in other countries, they just start with number three because one and two are provided to the citizenry. (laughs) Number three is drugs, cosmetics, and toiletries. Why are those all the same thing? Well, I don't know. They sell them at drugstores. Pharmaceuticals and uh, Irish Spring are the same segment. Yeah, and and Charmin. Number four, new cars. New New cars. cars. Number four. So oil industry, nowhere in the, nowhere hitting here. What does that mean? Where's the, where are the gun dealers? I want to know. So ExxonMobil is, is smaller than Palmolive. And then number five, hospitals. Ah. And then number six, of today. Number six, life insurance and annuities. So we're back to insurance. Number seven, pharmaceuticals. Oh, but that was different than drugs? Uh, yeah. Drug, cosmetic, and toiletries. That just means Alka-Seltzer. Are separate from pharmaceuticals. Wait a minute. This is weird. 10 biggest industries by revenue. It says here that number eight is public schools. That sounds about right. How many U.S. states have privatized (laughs) the public schools? And then number nine is property insurance and casualty insurance. And number 10 is commercial banking. So it's all basically the United States is an insurance nation and we make drugs and cars. We don't whale as much as we once did. If you can think about how, how big an industry it must have been. If you break it down differently, it goes real estate, business services, then government. It's a business. Finance and insurance. Number five would be still be healthcare. Healthcare. So, right. so, uh, so America became the dominant power in global whaling because uh, because we industrialized it and. Fortunately, you know, because we had, um, because we were sort of central to the world in, in the sense that we bordered both the big oceans. Woo! Yeah, go U.S. Uh, we were- Just us in Panama. As whaling became less of a day trip and more of a, more of a, like a major, like ocean-wide industry, 
we kind of followed the whales and followed the technology. And it was one of our, one of our first global enterprises in, um, in the early part of the 19th century, we started to send and, and, and whaling was really located in new England and very concentrated in a few places, Nantucket and, and new Bedford, Connecticut. I mean, just a few major, major hubs. But is this, this is in the air when the boats are still going all over the oceans. Well, this is the beginning of that big whaling fleets were based in these home ports and they would go out and spend often three years at sea just hunting whales and do you ever have to restock well that's the thing you, everybody just eats from off the whale you would catch you would catch the whale process it down into its components yeah parts. that's the thing on moby dick they're like a big part of the day is like using part of the ship to render whale fat yeah and then they would fill up big casks you know being a cooper on a whale ship was a major job i'd rather do that they would well. There's so many jobs on a whale ship that you could you'd be, you'd be great at. I feel like is the bar- the barrel maker is less complicit in all the murders than the guy throwing the harpoon. In my opinion, is that right? Yeah. You don't think that everybody is equally? No, he's just making a barrel. He's just making it's, barrels. It's not his. It's not his. Never mind what they put in it. Like they would fill up the entire ship with with barrels of of spermaceti in the case of sperm whale hunting and in barrels of oil and all the. Yeah, but they would they were processors rendering it, was a it down factory on the waves i would make their barrels out of the out of the baleen and i think they there was well maybe not maybe not baleen no they had to they also had to have blacksmiths because the blacksmiths made the made all the harpoons but they also made all the barrel uh the the rings that held barrels together what i'm just saying called. is if you make the barrels out of parts of the whale you can go for even longer i don't think i don't think they would be oil tight well the whale is Oil's not leaking out of the whale. Hmm, interesting. Why did they even process the whale? Why not just tow a thousand of them behind the boat? That's what I would do. Answer, sharks. Oh, good point. Uh, but the, 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 the sailors didn't, you know, they did stock up. They, they filled their larder with, uh, with ham hawks and toothpaste uh, before they left New Bedford. It was part of what made it a Yankee industry, right? Because it's uh, all the merchants were there at the seashore selling them um, in notebooks and, and sharpened pencils. Right. But as they went around the world, they also came into port in various locales. And that was part of the, um, part of the kind of American, the, the, the proto American century. We're really sending our best. It was one of the reasons that, that, um, Admiral Perry opened Japan because whalers were whaling off of, Japan and Japan had been discovered as a fertile whaling ground, but no whale ships could come into port there. So they're, they're killing whales right off the shore of Japan. But if they got, you know, any closer, the, the, the cannons would fire. So it was part of the opening. But what we did have was Hawaii, the whalers, the whale ships, and they're chasing the whales around the world. The, whales didn't stand a chance. Well, they, you know, there were a lot of whales, a lot more whales then than there are now. For some reason. But whalers arrived in Hawaii in 1819. And if you think about wow, when James Cook sailed around the, you know, like when James Cook was the first European to arrive in Hawaii, it was the 1770s. Parts of James Cook are still probably visible at low tide. Yeah, right. And so 
very early on in in the era of exploration or exploitation the uh, the you know the white bewigged british naturalists were followed hot on their heels by um by Yankee sideburned whalemen. I was really surprised. Like the Only first time I went later. to Lahaina in on Maui, and you see, you know, to this day, it's the kind of the biggest population center. You know, the the most concentrated urban like area on the island, and it's because that was the whaling waterfront. That's where all the money and industry was. Yeah, the first the the three big cities in Hawaii uh, were Hilo, Lahaina, and Honolulu. All three were whaling. Said, you know, whale whaling towns because whale ships arrived and they needed to replenish all the all their supplies. And what's crazy is that when the when the whale ships first arrived in eighteen tens or eighteen twenties, what what Hawaii what Hawaiians lived on were was poi and. More poi. And coconuts and breadfruit. I mean, you know, they had yeah. a very limited um, sort of set of staples and fish. But the whale, uh, the the whaling fleet. They brought five guys? They wanted more diverse food. And the whaling fleets are what brought a lot of fruit to Hawaii, tropical fruit. They brought them as cultivars. They brought potatoes they were the they brought beef and they brought them there as you know it, like new england merchants followed the whalers and were like oh wow okay this island out there like we'll go there and we'll be your we'll we'll bring some cattle and we'll set up a thing and sell beef to the you so, always got crooked agents but also like sugar and pineapples i mean all that was all the stuff you think of as native hawaiian yeah, flora yeah it was all brought to hawaii to supply the whalers. I mean, I don't want to stick up for the colonizers, but all that stuff tastes better than poi. Right. And that, you know, poi and fish, it, that's fine. How are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've had a, after they've had pog? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, you know, it was, I mean, the whalers were instrumental in, uh, not just like colonizing Hawaii, but really like, uh, as you say, so much of what, what really became kind of Hawaiian culture was in this intermixture, admixture of cultures that were, uh, we think we're seeing actual Polynesia and it's actually Polynesia plus whaling. Yeah. Right. It's a, it, it, it was a trading post and the, and the Hawaiians were, were kind of enthusiastic participants in it because, I mean, they also had a lot of desire to not have their daughters turned into prostitutes, but you know, it, this was a, this was a major difference in what it, you know, what it meant to be Hawaiian right. and having these whalers, right. You need to keep these guys under wraps, but there's a lot of, all of a sudden, you know, you've got an industry, you've got towns. And so the, the whaling fleets, um, the whaling fleets changed the world. And as they killed all the whales, one place, they moved on and found more whales other places and um, and moved in there and started killing those whales. It, it was by the 1850s, whalers had made it into uh, the Sea of O, the Sea of 
Ochtosk. The CFO? Of Ochtosk. The chief financial officer? How do you say it? You you lived close close by there. <laughs> yeah, that's the we talk, of, and we talked about it all the time. Ochtosk. We were like, we are so much closer to the sea of Ochotsk. I think it's Ochotsk. Ochotsk. Yeah. And the reason they call it CFO is because it's very Nobody hard for me to say Ochotsk. Uh, but the Sea of Ohotsk is that area between Japan and Kamchatka Peninsula, and that was like a like whale whale central whale party zone. And so the you know the whaling fleets kind of uh, because they were all from Nantucket, although they were in competition with one another, they were also you know they 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 would sail together in fleets, and as the years went by. Um, and they became more, and they would go out for these long voyages. Captains would bring their wives and kids. Uh, sailors weren't allowed to, but you you actually had some component of families that would travel. I guess you'd have to, because otherwise you wouldn't see them for three years. But geez, what an awful place to raise a family. Well, I know. And I mean, I, I think your wife is like, I'm going with you. And then she really regrets that, presumably. You got to have a special spring loaded whale ship because of her migraines. But then, but then I think that that was another reason that whale ships kind of would cluster because they would they would kind of form a little society, right? You're mm-hmm. this captain and that captain and their families all knew each other. They had Sunday services with one another. I mean, Perry didn't open Japan until 1853, but the whaling fleet was already um, was already surrounding Japan in 18 by the 18 late 1840s. And from there, they followed the whales up into the Bering Strait. And by 1848, the first Nantucket whalers were in the Bering Straits of Alaska, between Alaska and Russia. And they're following, at this point, uh, the bowhead whales, which, you know, they've kind of, they've had their way with, they've decimated a lot of other different whale populations. Sperm whales and the ones that would have been more profitable are harder to find now. But bowhead whales are enormous. They have the, they have the largest mouth of any whale Ooh. and they're, uh, they so do. They, they they're, produce, they're like all mouth. Look at these guys. They yeah. seem like a fake whale from a cartoon. They produce a lot, a lot of baleen along with all of the oil. Um, and as you move up into the Arctic or the Arctic, you don't say Arctic. I do say Arctic. You're trying to dumb it down for us, but we know you're an Arctic guy. As you move up into the Arctic Arctic, the Arctic, particularly then in an era prior to uh, the decline of the the ice cap that we live in now, the global warming era, um, you could, in the, in the height of the summer, you know, the ice pack would move off from shore and you had, you had open water. Does but, the Bering Strait freeze? Does it freeze down that far in the winter? Oh, it, it yeah, right. yeah, it does for sure, um, and did a lot more. That's how I walked across when I first settled the Western. Hemisphere. Oh, you didn't wait for a land bridge, you, you or it was post land bridge. Yeah, I saying. just, I just, I missed the land bridge, so I was just like, oh, I'll go, I'll go in the winter. You skated across. That's right. And that open water kind of comes and goes, um, but but there was no. If you think about the 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 search for the Northwest Passage and how much time and effort and blood and treasure was spilt trying to find a way across the uh, the Arctic or or across the middle of the United States through all these what seemed to them to be interconnected waterways. I mean, now there are that that uh, that Arctic Ocean is now open to open enough that you can bring ships across the top and as as the 
We finally did it. As the as the ice sheet keeps retreating, that's going to end up being a major, major shipping channel uh, globally. It's going to change global shipping. But at the time, of course, that wasn't true. And even in July and August, the weather could change in such a way that the that the ice sheet, which yesterday was kind of this this shiny rim miles away, miles away, all of a sudden the ice sheet is headed your direction. Cause it's, cause it's windblown. It's floating on the, uh. yeah. And if the, if the wind is suddenly coming from the West in the wrong way, you can get trapped between the ice and the, and the shore. But whalers are ambitious and whalers are, uh, are chasing the whales. They're risk takers. And the whales are headed up. So the whale ships follow them. And it was, um, it was an industry that was like kind of really peaking in the era right before the civil war in, in 1849, uh, this, this new territory, they, they took 500 whales out of the Bering Sea in 1849. By 1850, they, they got 2000 whales the following year. And this was during a time when, um, you kind of averaged uh, the the whole whaling industry was averaging about eight thousand whales a year. It's funny you could name every whale almost. They're they're big enough that you can sustain a whole industry on on uh, you know a small relatively what seems like a small number. I mean, if you think about the typical size of a whaling bark, um, like a three masted ship. How many barrels of whale oil can you even put in a thing? Right. You know, and 8,000 whales is no small number of whales, but. Especially compared to the global number of whales, it turned out. But that's, that's the fifth largest industry in the United States. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Wow. Uh, and so that, that within a few years of opening up the Western Pacific and the North Pacific, it became a big source of, of whale oil. And so a lot of the, the, um the new Bedford sailing fleet headed that way. Um, there were, would they still go out of new Bedford? Or, oh yeah. And no other way. You I mean all the way around, um, Cape Horn, Cape Horn wow. and back up the other side. And that's why these were, you know, these were three year adventures in the, in, you know, in this same era, like, I think it was recorded that, Almost 750 ships came through Lahaina in a single season, all from the East coast of the United States, all of them from, I mean, the, the, the fleet was not much bigger than seven, 800 ships the in se- total. The season's probably all year, but that's still a couple of ships coming in a day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's a major, major turn. Ken, we haven't talked for a while about omnibus t-shirts and merch, a thing that I'm super proud of, and I know you are too. I'm really excited about these new June shirt designs. The uh, I just heard got an email from someone who missed the mail truck shirt. One of the great shirts. Back when we first offered it. Uh, and this person should be delighted to hear that both shirts in January are... Uh, mail truck options. They are gray t-shirts for those who didn't want black or white. January. You said January. Did I say January? Yeah. I meant June, which is January in the Southern hemisphere. There you go. That's right. It's the, it's the January, it's the June of January. It's the January of summer. I always say. 
So uh, both June shirts you're saying are mail truck shirts. Yes, and here's the deal. One of them is an old Grumman LLV driven by Mr. Zip himself, mm-hmm. gray with the Omnibus logo in blue. But then the sparkly new one is one of these new next generation fleet of mail trucks with a cool, sexy 21st century Mr. Zip driving and the Omnibus logo in red. And they both look pretty great. How cool are they? I love them both. and um... They're in kind of fun mid-century modern style, uh, like something straight out of The Incredibles 2. The, that movie that the kids love. Yeah, they mm-hmm. they inv- uh, they invoke the the great history of mail trucks, and as as you know, uh, the way that fan communities operate, the mail truck is now synonymous with omnibus, which was genius of us because uh, as a you know quasi federal organization, they can't complain. Yeah, right. I mean, what can they, although although when the postal service band came out with their smash hit single, such great heights. They actually were confronted by the Postal Service, who insisted- Who said you can't call a band the Postal Service? Yeah. Well, what they did was they said, we'll let you uh, call your band the Postal Service if you do some ads for the Postal Service. They had, there was some kind of friendly tit for tat. Well, you know what? We would do ads for the Postal Service if, if that would let us sell mail truck shirts. We, we support the Postal Service. So buy the mail truck shirt and precipitate whatever whatever confrontation we're going to have with the, the U.S. Postal Service- and let's get this ball rolling. If you uh, missed out on the mail truck shirt the first time or want to see these new designs, just head to omnibusproject.com slash store. And you can see not only shirts, but all the other mugs and hats and whatnot that uh, we have to offer. Thanks to our friends at Mediocrity for uh, putting out these two new shirt designs. They're going to be on sale for all of June, but then they won't be anymore. So act now. Act now. Get those shirts. 1859, oil was first, um, the technology, you know, uh, oil always kind of bubbled up from the ground. It was just never clear how to capture that oil in any significant amount. Uh, There was no, no one had invented drilling that then, you know, it's, to drill a borehole, then you have to kind of put a pipe down there to, um, to, to, to funnel the oil, to control the oil as it comes up. And that technology wasn't developed until 1859. And in Titusville, Pennsylvania, which is the kind of the famous first, first oil rush, first oil rush, uh, in 1859, they started to first collect oil from the ground. You said to dip your spoon in the ground before that. Yeah, right. I mean, there were, you know, I mean, if you were, um, if you were, uh, like a saber tooth tiger, you would get caught in the tar all the time, you know, just in the cent- in the middle of Los Angeles, you get in here. You know, Probably not more than once per tiger. You know, a mammoth getting, well, yeah, I guess that's right. All right. What time are you going to get here? It's been 90 minutes. Sorry. I'm, I'm stuck in tar stuck over in on tar. the West side. It's just, you get stuck in tar. Then your cousin gets stuck in tar. So that was, I mean, oil always came up from the ground, but to be able to, to collect enough of it to make it not just profitable, but to even discover what you could do with it. And the first, the first product of, you know, or the, or the, the richest product from the, that original oil was, uh, was kerosene. That was the thing they really wanted to make gasoline that got used in cars, uh, was 
ended up, you know, that, that was originally like a, like a byproduct of processing for kerosene. Gasoline wasn't what people were after. And the kerosene was for lighting? Yeah. Kerosene, kerosene was for lighting and for, you know, for all the uses, uh, you know, find a thing, find a use for a, for a, a water that burns, Ken. Can you do it? I use it to get gunk off my hands sometimes. There you go. There you go. That's what I do with kerosene. That's about it, actually. I see. I'm in the backyard building uh, like a, a salt flat, a speed speed record rocket, and it's going to run on kerosene. It's going to run on afterburners. I'm going to have. It's on bicycle tires. I haven't built a single afterburner this week. So, well, not you, a lot of call for kerosene. You know, you're not flying out till later. You and I have the rest of the afternoon after we're done with this show. Is it lighter fluid? I guess yeah. I, I guess I use kerosene for that. Yeah, essentially. Naphtha. I mean, all the different, I'm sure there are futurelings right now that are made out of petroleum products, but also futurelings that make petroleum products. Like they excrete it uh, off of their potentially. bodies? I bet you we have petroleum engineers listening to the show right now. Oh, I see. Who want to tell us the 25 different levels of of processed petroleum and what they all are. I can't wait to get to those emails. From from the white liquor to the to the brown liquor to the blue liquor. They have colors? If if you if you process uh petroleum, yeah, it's it goes from it goes from light to dark. Huh. Like it's like chicken? It's like chicken. You ask what kind you want? Yeah. The lighter it is, the hotter it burns. That's it. that's what I'm gonna say. Whether that's true or not, I don't I don't know and I don't care. Or care, yeah. But so 1859, Titusville first starts pumping oil, um, and the population goes from 200 people to 10,000 people in a within a year, because this is you know this is like some hot new stuff. Those people would have lived on whaling ships, but instead uh, central Pennsylvania. But it is not anywhere near the scale that it's threatening whaling as a major industry. And whaling throughout the Civil War continued to be like the primary way that we got oil for all the many, all its many uses. And if you think about, um, how much locomotives and machines and, and machine guns and factories all kind of played into the, the industries around the civil war, uh, Yankee well ships were a major target target for the Confederate Navy. It was a way of, you know, to sink whale ships was to, yeah, inflict a serious blow on the on the Union war effort. Sure. Um, so even so, it took you know it took a couple of decades for for uh, what are we going to call it? Ground oil, earth oil, petroleum, earth oil. I call it earth oil uh, to to start to displace the whaling industry, and even into the 1870s, although whaling was increasingly in decline, it was still profitable and there were you know there were still uses for whale oil that that uh, petroleum oil you know it was such a fine oil for watches and you know uh, as a lubricant in in uh, very sort of delicate machines connoisseurs would prefer whaling oil for certain uses absolutely they would and I guess you've got once you've got an entrenched industry they're incentivized to not switch over, right. even if it's clear that the writing's on the wall. And you've got your corsets, you've got your hoop skirts, you've got your hair combs. Back scratchers. You know, back scratchers. Those backs aren't going to scratch themselves. You can't dig back scratchers out of the out of the um, shale beds. No, what are you going to do? Carve one out of wood? Come on. Like a, like a caveman? <laughs> 
1871, a fleet of whale ships headed out into the North Pacific and uh, were following the bowhead whales up through the Bering Strait along the western coast of Alaska. And there were 40 ships all kind of traveling together. And they headed past Nome all the way up the, um, following the whales in the open ocean, all the way up past Fort Wainwright, um, which is kind of up at the, what you would think of as the corner, uh, the northern corner of Alaska where you turn right and head over to Barrow, right? It's your, okay. your, now you're up in the Arctic. Arctic. And um, they're up there all June and July and having a, having a good old time chasing the whales around. And at the end of August, all of a sudden the weather turns. But they have a, they, the, the whaling fleet's been up here now for, uh, for a couple of decades. They have an understanding of what the seasons are. And although there's a, you know, although the wind changes direction and the, the Inupiat people that they're in contact with kind of, uh, you know, give warning in the sense that, that they, you know, that they say, this is, this is an ominous change. You, you all need to about face. The Inupiat tried. They did. The Inupiat tried. I'm not going to blame them when this eventually goes south. And, and, and we'll see. They get theirs. Um, but, I don't want them to get theirs. They no, see. no, no. The, the other way around. Oh, okay. They get theirs in, this, in the sense that, yeah, they get, they, they get their, their, uh, their pound of flesh they out of this. They get some good karma. But, um, but the, the whaling fleet does not kind of heed the signs. And, and, and partly it is that in this fall season – you will see the the wind change direction the 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 ice sheet kind of comes in but then there's a there's traditionally a fall northeaster you know wind blowing from the east that pushes the ice back out and that's during this you know mid September end of September time when you when the when you back out of of the arctic ocean and head back down to hawaii so they're playing the odds they're playing the odds they they the, the whaling is good and they're cooking along and it's not, that's my slogan. The whaling is good. When, and I'm cooking along. when the whaling's good. Just keep on cooking. The, the whale ships, it's not like they're under the command of an admiral or anything. You know, they're all independent businesses basically. And a, some of them are in a situation where two or three of them are sailing for the same concern, but they'll compete for the same whales then, right? They're competing for the same whales, but it's a, it's a thing where there are a lot of laws and covenants around whaling uh, and understandings like, Oh, if you saw the whale first, it's yours, but the first person to get a harpoon in it, uh, you know, um, and they're competitors, but it's not cutthroat or enemies. There's no yeah. They're not going to go to war. You, you will stand and watch your, watch another boat catch a whale. If that, if they have first right of refusal of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, you know, there's cooperation too. If you're in a situation where there are so, two, more whales than you can handle, you want your friends to also benefit from the, you know, one whale ship can't simultaneously process 10 whales. Yeah. Um, but this, uh, this 
little flotilla of 40 ships represents a, a, you know, a large component, or I'm sorry, a large proportion of the ships at sea at that given moment. The whaling fleet has shrunk considerably from its heyday of over 700 ships 20 years prior or 30 years prior. Um, and is now, you know, it's, it's a much smaller enterprise, but still, um, you know, it still going concern, but 40 ships represents a huge, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a big corner of the whaling fleet in as a whole. Right. And they're all up in the Bering Sea chasing these boat whales and the winds change and the ice cuts them off. So the strait is, there's now a barrier between them and either the shore or warmer ocean to the south. Right. And in, in the, in the moment that the, that it's apparent that the weather's changing, a few ships turn and head south and seven of them manage to escape being trapped by the ice. They, they escape to the south and really it's only a matter of, of, uh, 70 miles, right? If you were just, if you just headed south. Yesterday, like the Donner Party story, right? You're you're seventy miles south, and you're free of of entrapment. Um, the ice is probably forming as well. I mean, it's it's like clouds. They're you know bodies are moving around, but also new material is kind of swirling at the edges and expanding or contracting at any given time. Exactly so right. So it could like reach around you with tendrils. And as it blows in, and as it freezes up, it. Um, you know, the ice continues to move even after it becomes, you know, a solid form. And by the 2nd of September, 33 ships are stuck in the ice. 33 ships with a, um, a combined 1,219 people. Wow. That's the population of a pretty decent-sized town in 1870 it's yeah it's i mean titusville pennsylvania only just recently had more people <laughs> than are on on these 40 Trapped ships. in the middle of the arctic ocean oh and th- these are there's 1219 people on the 33 ships that are trapped they're you know the the seven that got away have their own cast and crew and how close are they to each other are we imagining kind of a cluster or are there miles between some of them so they're spread across about 60 miles of ocean and what, what, which means that, you know, every ship is inside of another ship and some of them are clustered three ships close by one another, but they do, they, they are in touch with one another. Um, but they're also each in their way kind of separate and in individual peril. Uh, and so on the, on the 2nd of September, the ice closes in and it captures the first of the 33 ships, a ship called the Comet, and the ice envelops the Comet and crushes it. And the, the crew and, the, and all the sailors and, and family um, on the Comet, they retreat to the, the ice can literally crack the hull open, water rushes in, and down it goes. Well, or it cracks the hull and not down it goes. It, it just gets, stays in the ice. Yeah, it gets pushed up on top of the ice and falls over and gets destroyed. Right. Um, the, so everyone on the comet retreats to a, a neighboring ship. Um, and a few days later, 
the Roman is also caught in the ice and crushed. And then a few days later, the Awashonks, or maybe the next day, the Awashonks, Awashonks is also caught and crushed. And do these, uh, do these wrecked ships lose hands or does everybody move to a, most people move to a different ship? Somehow everyone escapes across the ice. And what, 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 what whaling ships have, and I, and this is one of the kind of things that, that isn't clear about the industry of whaling to people that haven't read Moby Dick recently, as I have, is that the ships themselves are processing vessels, but the whaling actually takes place from whaling boats, which are oar driven, open, you know, peapod kind of, uh, ships or you know boats yeah. that, that that carry eight to ten people you leave the pequod and you get on the peapod that's right you get on the peapod and you you chase after the boat you chase after the whale with oars that's the that's from whence you harpoon the the whale and you use those boats to tow the whale back to the main ship well these whaling boats um as the ship as the roman for instance was crushed they were able to get their their whaling boats down and you could actually push them, you know, put your supplies in them and push them across the ice, the bumpy ice, until you found some open water. Not open water enough that you could navigate it with a ship, but you could get your oars in, get your people in, and travel across the open water and then pull the boat out, push it across the ice, et cetera, et cetera. So everyone from those three ships survived. And at, um, at this point, the, the seven ships that had escaped to the south, one of the things that, one of the aspects of the whaler's code was that a whaling captain never let another whaling captain flounder. You know, you always came to the aid of your fellow. It's a good code. It's a good code, right? Well, you and I have that code. Yeah, you, we, in fact, we call it the whaler's code. The whaler's code. We always come to the- If a, you're floundering in a sentence, I'll just kind of sit and watch you and do. see what happens. You do. You sit and watch. <laughs> and uh, and sometimes you look down at the internet or at your watch. <laughs> but the seven ships that had escaped, the Europa, the Arctic, um, and some of these are great. Some of the names of these ships are great because they are so, they are so Nantucket- yeah, um, I mean, Pequot is named for a local New England Indian tribe, so I assume that's there are a lot of indigenous-sounding names from the northeastern United States. Right? Not that many, actually. The Didn't Europa, you say the Sachumps, the or Arctic. Um, yeah, the Awashonks is one. That's got to be a New England Indian name. Uh, there's a there was a ship called the Lagoda, which was actually it was originally supposed to be the Ladoda, but they. Um, also not a word. It was well no, it was named after some Russian river or something, oh, but they okay. but they uh transposed uh the D with a G and then they were afraid that that to change the name back would be bad luck once you named a ship or carved the name in the bow. That's a huge thing. If so, you if you ever rename a boat, you have to remove every cocktail napkin and look at every screw and right. it's very bad luck at sea. So they ended up just naming it the Lagoda, which is a fake name. Uh but the but the other ships were the Progress the Midas, the Chance, and the Daniel Webster. Nice. And those seven they ships sure had escaped. sure Daniel Webster up there. <laughs> and so they waited just south of the ice pack, trying to decide what to do about the 33 trapped ships. Um, the, the wind continued to blow from the west. The ships then, the, the, so three of them sank. So the remaining 30 ships became encased in ice, spread across 60 miles. And the captains all kind of um, 
gathered together or they had a, they had a, uh, like a powwow. They, they tried to decide like as a group, what are we going to do? We don't have anywhere near the stores to winter through with all of these, you know, with, with, uh, 1200 people between us. We can't just live on blubber and yeah, they have, they probably have some whale stuff, but not enough. They do. I mean, but I don't, I think you're going to get scurvy pretty fast if you're, if you spend all winter living on blubber. Also, you got to, you got to burn that oil for heat. You need some polar bear livers to give you the vitamins. And you've got your wife with a hangover over here, or I'm sorry, a a hangover. It could be a hangover. A headache slash hangover. You don't know the kind of problems they have. So they decide as a group that they're going to, um, if by a certain day there uh, there's no change in the weather, there's no sense. I mean, you're now in mid September. Um, the days are getting shorter. This is the beginning of of the bad times. And the Inupiat people on shore are like, "Oh, you blew it! Like, what um, are you going to do? It's going to be you're going to be there for nine months, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. That's the thing. You're not. It's not just uh, the three months of the Donner Party. Um, this is, yeah, the you're, ice is not going to break up till the next summer. Yeah. You're, you're there until May at least. And, and this is a time when the, you know, the communities on shore are not, I mean, they're all subsistence communities. There's no way that they could accommodate 1200, uh, Nantucketers. Even if they wanted to, even if they wanted to, which, which they would. didn't. So on the 14th of September, uh, the signal was that when the ship, I guess the, um, I guess the, the ship, the champion was the place where all the captains got together because of the name probably. And they said, you know, we're going to strike the flag on the champion and it's going to be like lighting the, the, the pyre, um, to, uh, to call the riders of Rohan, uh, strike the flag on the champion. This will be the signal Every ship, as they strike the American flag, this will be the sign that we're we're abandoning ship. And they did um, on September 14th. And across this 60-mile line, they abandoned all 30 ships, piling all their survival gear and provisions into their whaling boats, which they dragged across the ice, And, you know, by like this ragtag fugitive fleet, galaxy far, far away, they managed to, to travel the, uh, across 70 miles of ice and, um, and, you know, patches of open water and it's all freezing all around them. And Towards the Alaskan shore? Is that where they're headed? No, they're headed south to the Europa, the Arctic, the oh. Progress, the Lagoda, and the Daniel Webster. And they made it all 1,219 people with no loss of life. And the other ships had stuck around at the edge of the ice flow waiting for them, despite no communication, I'm guessing. Well, the, no, they were sending, you know, they had runners or they had, they had people that were, that were, that would go to the edge of the ice with messages. Some, 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 when the, when the ships initially got caught, the seven ships that made it out waited and then messages were exchanged. So those seven took all 1,219 people aboard, spread across the, the seven ships. Wow. And 
the fleet, you know, the remaining seven all sailed to Hawaii and no loss of life. That's incredible. I mean, those ships were sailing with four or five times their complement. Yeah. And there, there was, uh, there was, there's supposedly the legend is that one sailor decided to remain on the Massachusetts. One of the ships was called the Massachusetts. Although there's no, and this is part of the legend of the whaling disaster of 1871, that one sailor stayed on the Massachusetts, but it's just part of the legend. I could not find any, I couldn't find a name for him. Is there supposed to be some noble reason for this? This is just his pride in his ship? I mean, maybe he had a, maybe he had a, uh, like a thorn in his paw and he didn't want to make the walk. I mean, I don't know. He had to go back and pee and then they just left without him. It's just one of those legends that didn't ever, I mean, all the, you know, those whaling museums, they love this kind of thing. There's so many, um, there's so many legends around whaling and it's so, we all recognize it as an abhorrent era, but it's also a very glamorous or, or romantic era for New England and, and 19th century America. But the, whoever this guy was that stayed aboard the Massachusetts, his name did not live in infamy or even for me. Or fame. Or, or as we, as you might say, fame. So it didn't work. He should have, uh, should have just come with. Should have come with, right. <laughs> so almost all of the ships were, uh, were crushed in the ice and sunk and destroyed. Crazily, according to the, um, according to the Inupiat population and I guess people that were on hand, only a couple of weeks, 10 days, two weeks later, the wind did change direction. The sea did open up and no. they could have all sailed out of there as it was, um, those ships just kind of floundered around and then the wind came back and, and crushed them I all. I bet the, the Anubian are just saying that to like piss them off. Hey, right after you guys left the, the ocean <laughs> opened, it was crazy. Yeah, it was it's kind of a dick move, but, um, you know, the native population, you know, salvaged what they could out of the ships. Of course, the Puritan, uh, the Puritans like dumped all the liquor off, off the boat, but they left no, all the, you know, gets it. they left all this other, you know, they left, I mean, just the wood alone and the nails. Did they have the result of their hunting season? Like were their all whale products all left? So that, you know, I, uh, to the degree that the Inupiat were able to, to use the barrels of oil, um, yeah. I mean, that, that doesn't have the same kind of value as the meat would have, but Almost all of the ships were destroyed. Only the Minerva was found the following year, and it was salvageable. It was just floating around. Yeah, somewhere. just floating around. It kind of the, when the ice thawed, it was still there, just burp, 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 and they came and got it. But the rest are now wrecked at the bottom of the. A lot of them got wrecked, got pushed up on shore by the ice, and um, you know, and were salvaged for whatever they could, uh, whatever you could get out of them. In 2015, uh, the scientists at NOAA the National Oceanographic and Era, uh, Atmospheric, atmospheric uh, administration? administration. I'm going to guess. Um, sent a, sent like an exploratory mission up there to see what they could see. And they actually found the wreck of two of the ships in just a few meters of water, like visible from above. Oh, wow. Above. Nobody has gone offshore. Well, much. yeah, it's sort of like that's not not a place. You're not going to be snorkeling. 
and uh, they took photos. They, they, you know, they saw anchors in the water and evidence of the, they couldn't tell which ships they were, but having found a couple of them and documented it, I think the scientists at NOAA got bored and said, no, that was a, they didn't tell anybody where they were, of course, because they don't want it to be tourist uh, spot. Yeah. But they, um, but there was evidence, you know, of it. I guess there's not, um, it's not like a Spanish galleon where people are going to be hunting for the treasure. Anything that's good is probably gone. Long gone. Right. And the ships, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe there were some, some, uh, boxes of pearls or, or a lacquered, a, a lacquered baleen comb or back scratcher that you could have grabbed. I mean, the moral of the story is, um, I guess what we learn is that you shouldn't, you should stick with the ship. And listen to the Inupiates. There is a, um, just five years later. In 1876, there was another whaling disaster that kind of uh, that kind of suggests that you don't stick with the ship. That's why we have to call this one the 1817-1 whaling disaster. Right. If there, if there hadn't been another one, we could just call it the whaling disaster. 1876 whaling disaster took place in, in about the same uh, location. The, the 33 ships that were lost, uh, 22 of which were from New Bedford, it really was a was a terrible blow to the Yankee whaling industry. Um, so the, the fleet was much diminished. So in 1876, the whaling fleet was now reduced to 20 ships. Well, it's barely a disaster. That's like the whaling misfortune. I know. Can you imagine? It's a, like, that's a, like a less than half the ships last time. Ho-hum. Uh, but the weather changed a lot earlier in 1876, and uh, the Arctic which uh, was a ship that had uh, survived the 1871 disaster. The Arctic was caught in the ice in July and crushed. And its crew abandoned the ship and kind of traveled. They were 20 miles offshore. They they found their way to shore, uh, ended up joining the crew of the Onward. Then there was, then the, the, the ice got pushed out by the wind the whaling fleet was like, oh, you know, it's... We're going to get out. Yeah. Well, no, they were like, not we're going to get out. Let's go further. Oh, uh, see, this is the problem. Chase the whales. Chase whalers. the whales. Um, they they all went up into the Beaufort Sea, and uh, the, the ice came back in, and all 20 ships were caught. They decided they were going to abandon, the captains decided they were going to abandon ship and 300 guys and all their stuff hit the, hit the bricks, uh, or hit uh, what we call the ice. We call it the bricks in Alaska. And made it to shore, but 50 guys decided they were going to stay on board the ships, not because, um, they thought they were going to survive the winter, but because they, they, had learned the wrong lesson from 1871. We'll just wait for it to open. We'll wait for it to open. And having stayed, they would have had salvage rights to the ships. Yeah. And salvage rights would have been extremely profitable to them because they were also salvaging all of the the whale oil. And so 50 guys stayed on. The 300 guys that made it to Barrow, um, there were a couple of ships that were frozen in the ice there. But the weather did open up and they were able 
to get into these three remaining ships, the, the Rainbow, the Three Brothers, and the Florence, and they escaped. But the 50 guys, I'm sorry, yeah, the 50 guys who stayed on board the, the ships caught in the ice, the, the ice never opened up that far, and those ships were all crushed and lost. The guys all died. And four of the guys made it to shore, I think, and one survived? Is that right? I guess they're always fighting the last war. Oh, three survived. Three survived. Maybe the moral of the story is just stay out of the Bering Strait altogether and let the whales just do their whale things and don't kill any whales. What's that? Is that part of the whaler's code? I guess that would be a very unpopular part of the whaler's code. What's crazy about whaling is that we think about this moment, right? After the, after the whaling disaster of 1876, it was really the death knell for the New Bedford whaling scene. The American whale whaling culture went away. It, it was being replaced by petroleum. Um, and although there was still a small amount of whaling, it was very much a niche enterprise for watchmakers and whatnot. But this is something that I didn't really fully understand. Whaling continued as a global enterprise. And whaling became an industrial enterprise. So much so, and this was this is my opportunity to say Soviet, um, the Japanese and the Soviets and the Norwegians and, um, you know, there were several nations that continued whaling into the industrial age and continued whaling until, um, the endangered species act or until the, until the anti whaling, the ban on whaling that didn't, that didn't happen until 1973. It turns out that more whales were killed in 19 in the 1960s than at any time before or since. Um, as far as the statistics that I found, it seems that in the um, in the Amer- in the in the height of the whaling industry of the 19th century, they were and this is like peak year, they were getting about 8,000 whales a year, as I said before. In the 20th century, the industrial nations of the world were killing 50,000 whales a year. So the real problem was not artisanal whaling in the 19th century. It was. It was industrial whaling and, and I mean, there were still, there were still, they were still using whale oil as a lubricant into the 1980s. And, and a few of these nations, Japan and, and Norway and Iceland, I think still, uh, maintain the right to whale. And I think some of them still prop up the industry with subsidies because there's a, you know, there's a legacy of it and a powerful lobbying group and the, there's no market for the product really yeah. anymore, but, um, it's jobs. The statistics now, are, because there, there, a lot of the documentation was suppressed and people are just now starting to put all of the records together. Um, they now estimate that, Three million whales were killed in the 20th century, dwarfing the number of whales killed throughout the whole history of whaling, which we think of as an archaic. So we think of the bloody, what we think of as the bloody time was actually just kind of a quaint 
uh, home industry that didn't make a dent. Yeah, whales aren't an endangered species because of the because of Queequeg. They're an endangered species because of the enormous factory ships and explosive harpoons. And, um, and were the Americans largely out of the industry at this time so we could feel better about ourselves? The Americans were not industrial whalers. And in fact, we were, you know, uh, um, there, a lot of the nations of the world were against whaling. And there were all these attempts to uh, monitor whaling and have quotas. And, um, and the, the whaling nations were scofflaws, were always trying to thwart and bend whaling regulations. And I remember it in my lifetime, the outcry of, uh, of a lot of the nations of, of the world that we were trying to ban this, this ancient and noble practice of whaling. But if you see like a factory whaler with 10 whales, uh, 10 dead whales, um, in the process of being chopped up and, uh, by, you know, with, with these giants, I mean, they're just, they're giant factory ships. I mean, honestly, we're, we're giant factory murdering all the time, but you just don't think of the whales. And also one of the crazy things I learned was that those whalers, when they weren't finding whales, were killing walruses. Oh, that was what they did on their downtime. And actually walruses were a major part of the whaling industry. Like the, like walruses are endangered because whalers um, we're, we're taking them, you know, by the, by the handful. Well, it's a good thing we won the cold war then briefly, the, uh, ending the Soviet whale slaughtering machine, machine, the vast red, uh, whaling conspiracy. Yeah. I feel like it's, it's one of the, um, I mean, it's, it's one, one of, of our the, great accomplishments. One of the best things the United States ever did. It should be on Reagan's grave. There should be a picture of a happy whale. And that concludes the 1871 whaling disaster. Entry 399.1T0119, certificate number 31403, in the omnibus. Now, aquatic mammals of the future, we apologize for, I guess we should have had a content warning before we talked about all the... Well, sure, especially... Slaughtered whales and walruses. I mean, the thing is, if you think about the listeners of omnibus, if you think of the futurelings as sentient squid... They are rejoicing in this whole yes. show. They're like, kill them, kill them. Are we team squid or team whale? Every time you go to the New York Natural History Museum, you got to decide. Uh, we're just, uh, you know, we're products of our time as well. That extends. I mean, John and I don't do a whole lot of factory whaling. Um, we are complicit in social media because uh, we were at Omnibus Project on various platforms. Uh, I'm at Ken Jennings. Uh, John, you can find on his Patreon. We jointly have uh, a Patreon for the show at patreon.com slash omnibus project. We have close to 2,000 contemporary listeners who support the show and keep it profitable, keep the lights on here in the bunker. That's really wonderful. Uh, just today, as we're recording this, just today, I just posted the, uh, the April addenda show. There's a bonus episode that, um, that all tiers of donation get to listen to. Mm -hmm. So if you have considered supporting the omnibus before and you have not, why not, uh, right now, as soon as this interminable intro ends, go to patreon.com slash omnibus project and see what 
tickles your fancies? What tickles your whale ivory? This is an outro you're doing. Yes. Not an intro. Did I say intro? You said intro. Oh. Sorry, I mean, I'm not, don't want to be that guy, but. Interminable outro. Intermin- I probably said out-terminable intro. Out-terminable intro. You uh, could uh, email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You could mail us things at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Send us your great-grandpa's scrimshaw before, um, before it gets destroyed in a mass ivory burning. Do it. Uh, we'll, we'll hide it. We won't. Uh, we won't think less of you. No, for all the contraband ivory you have in your home, you can uh, find your fellow futurelings. Uh, a pod or a, a whatnot of them will be clustering and uh, singing to each other at uh, the futurelings groups on. Uh, it'll sound just like that on Reddit or uh, Discord or most prominently Facebook. And uh, wait, that's it. I wasn't building to anything. That's the whole thing. Thanks to uh, thanks to Mark Miles, who edits the show, and who we only really mention uh, during the parts that get cut out, because that's his job, to cut out all the parts where we say, hey, Mark Miles, we screwed this up. Right, right. If I were him, I'd be incentivized to leave in all those parts, because that's the only part where my name is. Uh, yeah. But not, not this time. This time I'm saying thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, uh, thanks to you, Ken. Thanks to all of our listeners. Thanks to you, John. Thanks to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thanks to uh, Gordon Lightfoot for recording songs about various whaling disasters, probably. That's right. Uh, Thank you to all the ships at sea. Mr. and Mrs. North and South America. Mm -hmm. And that uh, expression, is Mr. North America a man and Mrs. South America a woman? Or is there both a Mr. and Mrs. North America and a Mr. and Mrs. South America? Because he says Mr. and Mrs. North and South America and all the ships at sea. Is he speaking to two or four married continental entities in addition to all the ships at sea? I think, I think, I think it's a, I think it's like a cocktail party with Mr. and Mrs. North America, Mr. and Mrs. South America. It's a double date. All the ships at sea. No, it's a big party. Does that mean that any kind of good neighbor policy between North and South America is some kind of wife swapping? That's what I, I mean, I picture them looking like Lucy and Ricky Ricardo. Well, that would be Mr. That, then he's South America and she's North America. That would be one couple. But it doesn't mean, what about Ed and, uh, uh Fred, Fred and Ethel. Fred, Fred and Ethel, maybe they're, uh, also. This uh, is very confusing that, uh. Mixed marriage. That there's a Cuban in Mr. North, I guess Cuba is in North America. There you go. They're Mr. and Mrs. North American, then Ed, uh, then uh, Fred and Ethel are Mr. What's and Mrs. What's a famous case of a of a t- of an American double date between a North American couple and a South American couple? Uh, when J- uh, Jackie O and John F. Kennedy hosted uh, the, Eva and Juan Perón. The Perones. I don't think that ever <laughs> happened, and maybe the dates don't even work. I'm not sure. Probably they don't. But yeah, fanfic. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>